we're going to deal with uh, verse 4. I, um, as I was going through Hebrews, I had, I had initially planned on, on taking verse 4 through verse uh, 7 today. And you know, this week, one of the days that I was studying, um, I was discouraged about something and I was praying about it. And I just, I, I realized it hit me. And you know, I think uh, you guys who are older like me can identify that sometimes this feels kind of silly that we would be discouraged about something when we have God's word in front of us, and then we would start, then we can start naming off the reasons from God's word that we can be encouraged, and we have to, we have to do that routinely, don't we? Um, it's easy to get discouraged over things that are happening in the world, and then say, "Wait a minute, wake up! This is God's word we're talking about. We have hope in Jesus Christ." Nothing in this world is worth being discouraged over when we have been set apart by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and so I started counting the things in, in Hebrews that I could be thankful for and what I thought initially was going to be a 40-minute message from chapter uh, 11, verse 4 through 7 turned into hopefully 30 minutes on verse 4. So we'll see uh, how that works. Yeah, just the high sign right there. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you live in a glass house, bro. Um, so uh, so uh, we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we're going to pray first, and, uh, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us today from chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that when we come in faith through Jesus Christ, when we come in faith through Jesus Christ, we have an abundance of, of reasons to be thankful. And we, your word set before us, there are so many things in your word that teach us, that illuminate us, that show us who you are, that help us how to live uh, in a way that is pleasing to you. And we can just go over the same passages over and over and over again and find uh, new examples of your grace. I say new, but not really new, just new to us previously unthought of things uh, that you have put in your word and that for 2,000 years have been here for us. God, thank you for your word. I ask that you would illuminate us today by your word and that through your spirit you would enable us and empower us to live in such a way as to lift high the name of Jesus and see the name of Jesus and the gospel spread all over Hamtramck. Um, Lord, uh, as much as we'd like to be responsible, or maybe not responsible for, but uh, be able to affect how people view your word and how people um, understand or uh, accept the gospel, we can't. All we can do is plant seeds and trust you for the growth. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to grow, help us to cast seed, and we ask that you would give the increase. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy uh, that you make available through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Um, as I was thinking of, of this throughout the week, I, uh, I remembered a sermon that I heard once. Uh, I asked my wife about it this morning. I kept meaning to ask her, and I asked her about it this morning. Um, years and years ago, before I was a believer, we had gone to a church to visit with some friends, and the guy preached on um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. 
And his message was, you know, I want a faith like Enoch's. And after the service, I don't, I don't remember everything about it, about the sermon itself, but afterward, I just remembered the impression from this guy was, what he meant was, he wants to be taken up to heaven. You know, he wants to walk with God. He wants to be taken up to heaven. And, and I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking back on this sermon, and I'm thinking, we do have a faith like Enoch's. We do have a faith like Abel's. If you belong to God through Jesus Christ, you do have a faith like this. Now, that faith may not have manifested in your life in the exact ways that it manifested in these guys' lives, right? We call it the, the hall of faith or the walk of faith or the heroes of faith for a reason. But at the same time, we do have a faith like theirs. And if you don't get anything else out of today's message, I hope that you get that. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, in what he accomplished on the cross, if you are trusting in God alone for your salvation, you do have a faith like these guys. It's your faith. Walk in that faith. That's, if you don't get anything else out of this ser sermon today, I hope you get that. I'm going to remind you what we talked about last week. What is biblical faith? This is my working definition. Um, it's probably not perfect, but, you know, I'm used to that by now. Faith is believing what God has revealed in his word as absolutely reliable truth. That's what faith is. There are facts involved. You intellectually agree with those facts, and then you have based your life. You've put your trust in those truths. That's faith. What does it mean to live by faith or walk by faith might be another way to say it. Living by faith is making decisions, daily decisions, uh, based firstly on what God has revealed in his word, rather than on feelings. Now, I put reason here, because, not because I'm downing reason. I, I don't have air quotes in my uh, word document. You know? So there's air quotes, it's not regular quotes, air quotes around reason, right? Because if, if, if our reasoning is based on false premises, it is a laughable reason. It's a foolish reason. Right? So when I say reason there, I mean the reason as the world considers it. They say, you have your faith, we have reason. Well, your, your reason is woefully uninformed. Um, the reason that we have in the scripture is a better reason because it's informed by God's word. And those are better truths because they're actually real. Um, and of course, the last thing we would make sure we don't want to consider is the consensus of the unbelieving world. Uh, the consensus of people has never defined uh, morality. You can see that in Psalm 2 probably more clearly than anywhere else. It doesn't matter if the whole world was to stand up against God and his anointed. He would laugh and then speak to them in his anger. So living by faith is making decisions based on what it says in God's word. That's how we live our lives. So we're going to read uh, Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 7, and then we're going to focus in on today's message. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him uh, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Uh, I put a couple of asterisks. I can't say it, whatever. You know there's more than one. Uh, here, because I wanted this to see something. The NIV uh, renders this, um, must believe that he exists. And the underlying word here is that he is. Um, I take issue with the he exists because I think that it takes the focus off. What does it mean when we say he is? It, well, it means the same thing that we believe, that we believe in John uh, when over and over and over again, John tells us of Jesus, uh, Jesus' words when he says, unless you believe that I am he, right? So this, I think the same idea is being conveyed here in Hebrews. Must believe that he is, that the one who says I am is. I think he's trying to explain that, and so I don't want to miss that just by saying that he exists. Because guess what? We live in Hamtramck, and everybody here almost believes that God exists. But they don't believe that Yahweh exists. They don't believe in the one who said, I am. And they certainly don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So it's, it's kind of important that we understand when we say God exists, we don't just mean nebulous, a God exists. Tons of people believe that, and they're going to hell. So it's important to say that we believe who God says he is in this word, the Bible. Um, the other part is, it says be, uh, who comes, comes to him. Um, and I don't want to miss what we have seen over and over in Hebrews, and that the word underlying here is the same one that's translated elsewhere, draws near. This idea of drawing near to God. I don't want to lose that thread. Over and over through, through uh, chapters 7 through 10, we saw how as, with Jesus as our high priest, we can draw near to God. The same thing, the same reason that uh, Nadab and Abihu, was it, uh, well, I forget the guy's names, but the first two sons of, of, uh, of Aaron, the same reason they died is that they drew near to God by strange fire. They drew near to God in a way that, they did, that he, did not, um, he did not give. He didn't ordain. And they died as a result. We are allowed to draw near. We're welcome to draw near. We're accepted when we draw near through Jesus Christ. So I didn't want to lose those two points. Because anyone who draws near to God through Jesus Christ must believe that he is. Must, their, their understanding of God has to be informed by the Bible. Otherwise, they're not worshiping God. Believing he's a creator is not enough. Believing that he's overall and sovereign is not enough. You need to know who God is in the word. Um, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Don't want to miss that part either. That there's an actual seeking. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And the reason I wanted to read all three of these uh, guys at first is because I think it's really cool the way um, each one of these guys in, in, a, in a big picture shows us uh, what the author of Hebrews was exhorting the church to do in chapter 10, verse um, 19 through 25. Draw your attention back to there. Remember, there were three main exhortations that he started with, and I'll just read those. He says... Um, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart 
And then he says in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly. Some of your translations might say hold fast to the hope we profess. And then the final uh, exhortation was consider how we can spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Um, the idea, the big idea being that uh, primarily we draw near to God ourselves. Secondly, we hold fast because faith over the period of a lifetime is the faith that saves. Not really emotional faith, not faith that just causes some change, but faith that is effective over an entire lifetime. Remember, Jesus said the one who endures to the end is the one who's going to be saved. And then finally, that last aspect was the concern, the love for others that leads you to be concerned about the eternity of others, right? The same love that makes you look at a brother and say, man, I've seen some stuff in your life and we need to talk about this. And the same love that looks at a sister who's suffering and says, hey, don't forget, Jesus died for you. Press on, be encouraged. My point is that we look at each other and we desire the same thing that we desire for ourselves, that we would be more and more like Jesus Christ every day and that we would continue on and persevere in the faith, right? So there's that personal drawing near, the second, hold fast, endure, and the third, looking out for the others in the body of Christ. And that's what we see uh, kind of in a big picture. I'm not going to go into great detail about that, but I didn't want to lose that big picture either. Abel shows us how to draw near. Enoch shows us how to hold fast, how to endure. And Noah shows us how to be concerned for others. He highlights here in verse 7, he says, uh, in holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. He's concerned for others. So I just thought it was kind of neat the way the way those verses from chapter 10 were sort of mirrored here. Now, um, I kind of put those little aspects right here for us. Let us draw near to God, let us hold fast to him, and serve one another in love. Now, what do we learn from these men of faith? Now, this is kind of a general picture, and we'll get into it with uh, Abel here in a second. Um, but we see the same thing in all of these examples. We see Jesus reflected in the lives of all of these people. We see Jesus reflected there. We see his great character held up. We see aspects of his character put on a pedestal as reflected in humans who had saving faith in God. And we need to be exhorted to emulate those qualities. We see the gospel preached because we never want to move beyond the fact that, that we're saved by grace, not by works. I think this is one of the great reasons that chapter 11 is here in the first place because this guy is exhorting these Jewish brothers and sisters to not forget that the way that Judaism had kind of perverted the word of God, I don't mean changed it itself, but the practice. They turned it into a list of do's and don'ts and reasons to take one person and say, you know, I'm more holy than that person at least. I'm better than that person because look at my, my box. I've got way more, or my, my list, I've got way more things checked off. And he says, no, it's not been primarily about what you've done, but it's been first about your faith. And so he, he highlights by faith, by faith, by faith, over and over and over through this chapter. Because it is not by works, but by faith. And then finally, we see the results or the benefits of our faith. <clears throat> so how does Abel show us this? By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So Abel, first of all, he points us to Jesus. Well, 
how does Abel point us to Jesus, right? Let's look at um, Genesis chapter 4. We'll use Genesis chapter 4, and we'll use the information in in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, to come to these conclusions. Uh, So in Genesis chapter 4, Abel is the second born in time. Uh, This is in chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse uh, 2, midway through verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, as we go on through the chapter, we see God dealing with Cain and pointing him to the sin of his own heart. And Cain does not regard the sin of his own heart and repent. Instead, he sees the one who makes his sin apparent And he puts him to death. And this is how Abel shows us Jesus. Because we have this this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And what happens? The very first first, uh, or the second generation of people, right? The first generation of people who were born show us this. This contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Do the wicked in and of themselves repent and turn to God? No, they do not. Right from the very beginning, what happens in Cain's faithless heart, Hebrews tells us the difference is faith in Abel. So whatever you've heard in the past about meat or about anything else, now while it may follow that Abel is looking at what happened with his parents and what God did, to cover his parents' shame, it may be that he followed that pattern, but it wasn't because of the meat, it was because of his faith. It was the faith that under that undergirded that action. And so as we see this unfold, rather than accept that he was wicked and repent, Cain killed his righteous brother. The devil was a murderer from the very beginning, Jesus said. And this was the very first murder that he incited. That rebellious spirit, that of the unsaved, hates righteousness. That's why we see the world in the shape it's in today. That's why we look around and we go, wait a minute, how did just in a few years it seem that the, the, the tables got turned and people hate Christianity? How did that happen? Well, the tables didn't get turned. It's just that in the United States, for a long time, Christianity enjoyed a majority. And then the generations of the people who who had grown up as Christian had those values instilled in them, even if they weren't Christians. But when people don't come to faith themselves, all those morals go out the window. Whenever they bump up against uh, a convenient choice, they'll go out the window for somebody who doesn't have any real faith. That's why Jesus said, you know, as soon as, as trial or temptation comes, that type of the soil that was, buried, uh, that was, um, that was uh, planted in, in very shallow soil, it burned up and fell away. The contrast of the righteous and the wicked. We see this perfectly in Jesus. And I'm going to just draw your attention to a couple of places in John. I'm not going to read uh, John 1, but in, in, 9 verse, 9, in verse 9 through 13, you'll find... Uh, where it says that, that uh, 
Jesus came to his own, but his own didn't accept him. And then in chapter 3, you'll see that the reason they didn't is because he brought the light of revelation of truth and righteousness. And their deeds were wicked, so they didn't want any part of it. But Jesus really gets to the point in John chapter 7 with his brothers. And so that's, that's one of the sections that I'd like to read for us. Uh, and in John chapter 7, we'll just go to the first few verses. Um, it says that Jesus uh, went around in Galilee, and he didn't go, want to go up to Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe him. Now listen to Jesus' response. Jesus told him, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. The world hated Jesus because he testifies that its works are evil. And that is why Cain hated Abel. Because Abel's righteous works were a testimony to the fact that Cain's were evil. And and Abel's faith, which empowered his righteous works, testified to the fact that Cain was faithless. This is how Abel points us to Jesus. One of the ways in which he points us to Jesus. Um, In John chapter 15... Jesus says how that's reflected uh, in his followers. He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they observe my teaching, they will observe yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Think about that. The world hates Christianity because it hated Jesus and because Christianity and real followers of Jesus reflect him. And thereby, they testify that the works of the world are evil and that they are faithless. You understand that Abel reflects Jesus in the same way that we can reflect Jesus in as much as we live lives that are in accordance with God's word and the gospel, we testify that the works of the world are evil and we testify that they are faithless. So in the contrast of the righteous versus the wicked, but also in his offering of an acceptable sacrifice. Remember, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It wasn't the fact that he offered a blood sacrifice that made his offering better. It was the faith that went underneath that, and then it was the basis of faith, the blood of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints have the exact same basis for their salvation that we do. They just didn't know that it happened and it didn't happen in a past tense for them. They're looking forward to God's salvation. We're looking backward at God's salvation, but the basis of God's salvation is the exact same. It is the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ, which we're going to remember here at the end of the service. 
He made an acceptable offering. That's how he points to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who came and made an offering of his own merit and was accepted on his own righteousness. And inasmuch as we believe in Jesus, that righteousness is reflected in us. So Abel made an, an acceptable offering and he pleased God. He was commended as having pleased God. Jesus was, having, uh, was commended as having pleased God several times. At least in his baptism, God speaks from heaven, the, 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 the sky is opened, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. With him, I am very pleased. And then later, on what people call the Mount of Transfiguration, I don't know if that's the appropriate term since Jesus has always been who he is. I think it should be called the Mount of like Revealing because they got to see his glory for a minute. But regardless, there again, God said from the cloud, he said, this is my son whom I love. I'm pleased with him. And then he adds, listen to him. So he's commended as having pleased God. In all these ways, he points to Jesus. Well, his life also preaches the gospel, right? His life preaches the gospel in this. Abel approached God in accordance with what he knew God had revealed. I'm a firm believer that Genesis, that the things we read in Genesis were recorded by Moses and had been passed down by the followers, uh, by, the, um, by the faithful uh, among the children of Israel. That they passed down these stories generation to generation. Um, I could give you a lot of reasons for that. I won't do it now. Um, but I believe, it's, I believe it's the right way to understand how Genesis was transmitted. And then just the same thing we read that Peter says, that the Holy Spirit's watching over Moses as he writes it and was watching over the people as they remembered. But Abel approached God in accordance with what he knew that God had, had revealed, right? Abel knew what happened with his parents in the garden. And I believe because God drew him and God gave him the faith that he needed, faith is a gift, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, comes from God. It's not of our own doing. And it's not from our own works. So Abel, because, because God enabled him to, was able to see his own sinfulness in the way that his sinfulness was a reflection of the rebellion that first appeared in his parents. And he was able to see what God had done to repair the relationship of their parents with himself. And so when he came to approach God, he came to approach God trusting in what God had revealed and trusting in the system by which God had taken away the shame of his parents. That's why I believe he brought an animal. And so in this way, he shows us the gospel because we too recognize that God created us even though we're far removed from that generation we too have recognized our sinfulness and our rebellion and how that shows the same rebellion that existed in Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see the way that manifests itself in our lives. And we understand that an appropriate sacrifice had to be made. We have the advantage of Hebrews 7 through 10 to spell it out for us. That Jesus is the priest who offered that Jesus is the sacrifice that was made. That his blood is the one that actually purifies. 
but able to approach God by trusting in what he had revealed, by a heart that was really drawn by God towards himself. Finally, Abel, Abel illustrates the benefits of our faith. Um, and this is where you know, the list began for me this week as I was thinking of all the reasons that I had to praise God because of his word as a follower of Jesus that were actually in these first few verses. The first one was that faith in Jesus, by faith in Jesus, God accepts and is pleased by our offerings. Romans 12 says, uh, Therefore, brothers, you know, after the, after the teaching portion of Romans, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. It is true that for unbelievers, all their righteous acts are filthy rags. But for those of us who approach God, who draw near to God through Jesus Christ, our offerings of prayer, of praise, of service to others, of faith, even when things are hard, of repentance when we turn away from sin in our life, of humility when somebody has to point that out to us. Every single bit of our offering is acceptable and pleasing to God. It is not filthy rags because Jesus purified those things for us. He purified our hearts that offer them. And he purifies our hands as well. God accepts and is pleased by our offerings as followers of Jesus. God distinguishes us from the world. As we saw reflected there in John chapter 15. Jesus told his disciples, they hate you because they hated me. You understand what that does? That puts us in a category with Abel. That puts us in a category with Enoch, with Abraham, with Moses, with all the rest who have drawn near to God by faith. We are set apart from the world. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in chapter 15. And if that wasn't enough, in chapter 17, he prays for us. He sets us apart by that same faith that he gave to Abel. He distinguishes us from the world. We're also commended by God as righteous on the righteousness that comes from faith. I would remind you of chapter uh, 3 in Romans that says that there's a new way of righteousness that's been uh, made clear apart from the law. In chapter 4, we see that it's the righteousness of faith uh, the same righteousness that Abraham had uh, in chapter 4, verse 2. If Abraham had been justified by works, he had something to boast about, not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. <clears throat> same kind of faith as Abel, believing what God had revealed. The same kind of faith that we have, we just have more information that God has revealed. And then in the end of chapter 4, he says uh, in verse 18, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Because he was delivered over, to our, uh, delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. I'll remind you again, justification means to be declared righteous. And if God has declared you righteous, you're righteous. And you're in the same category of faith as all these hall of famers. Our lives can also preach good news. Whether we live or whether we die, our lives can preach good news. Um, as I was thinking through this, there were a couple of passages that, that I was thinking about. I'm going to read one from Revelation. Uh, there's another one as well, but I, I think for the sake of time, I'm just going to read from uh, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, after it talks about the woman and the dragon, uh, in verse 10, uh, John writes, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Listen, we also will triumph over evil, over the accusations of the devil, not by our own efforts, but by over the blood of the Lamb. It is because of the blood of the Lamb that we have a testimony. But our lives preach good news. I, I, I meant this in the big sense. And I think he means this in the big sense as well. Uh, and that's why he's talking to this church about it. Because he's saying, like, you guys have gone through persecution before, and you're, you might do it again, and you need to hold fast. But make no mistake, even if you die, even if you die, your lives will preach the truth just as certainly as Abel's did. Because to those who knew you, whether believer or unbeliever, they have the testimony of your life. I don't mean to divorce that from proclamation of the gospel. I don't think that's necessarily what's in view in this passage, but we still need to preach the gospel because otherwise they'll have no idea why we look different and they'll have no hope of coming to God unless we preach the gospel. So let's make sure we do that as well. Finally, we'll live even if we die. I won't go to John uh, right now, uh, to John chapter 11, but Jesus says this to Mary and to Martha Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. Or Mark chapter 12, Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. We will live even if we die. I want to put you, um, I wanted to give you an encouragement at the end, just to remind you again of the point that we made in the beginning, that you do have faith like the heroes of faith. If your faith is based on the word of God, and the work of Jesus Christ. If that is what your faith is based on. If that is where your faith is. You do have the same faith as these guys. 
In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me this morning that we would recognize that we do have a faith like theirs because of the basis of our faith because of the information that we actually say we believe in and we truly do believe in, and because of the one that we love and the one that we follow, even though we have not seen him. Um, Let's pray and let's praise God. Uh, Praise God for these things and all that Scripture tells us that we have in Jesus Christ by his merit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given to us a faith like the faith of Peter, like the faith of Abel, like the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like whoever whoever, uh, that biblical character is other than Jesus, who we see as heroes. You have given us a faith like theirs because their faith like ours is based in your word and what you have revealed. And even though they did not, many of them did not know the Messiah or know nearly as much about the Messiah as we do, they did come to you based on his merit and the merit of his accomplishments. And the righteousness that's reflected in them is the same righteousness that can be reflected in us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, it's my prayer for everybody here this morning uh, that their faith would be truly uh, built, that mine would be truly built on Jesus Christ. And that you would help us to consciously look at your word and emulate uh, Jesus and emulate those heroes of the faith that show us Jesus in our lives so that our lives can truly be a testimony to to the truth and the efficacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for Hamtramck uh, that that you would help us to maintain uh, as a church here a proper witness of Jesus Christ and the gospel and that you will save people as a result of, of our efforts to please you. But I thank you that we're pleasing to you separate from the results that it, that it has in this community. Thank you that we are pleasing to you because of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray and we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.